Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Roger, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, so today we've got Roger McFillin on with us. How would I introduce Roger? I mean, if you've been on his Twitter, uh, you, you probably know about him. But for those of you who haven't, I would say he's probably the most outspoken um, psychotherapist that I have seen uh, about against psychiatry. Um, and I love the things that he says on Twitter. And I think we're going to have a great conversation today. You know, I'm going to start off by asking, Roger, have they come for you yet? Because when I see the things that you put out there, you know, I'm just going, man, this guy must be getting canceled. He must be getting pressured from uh, the professional organizations. Give me an overview of that. Well, I don't know who they are anymore. So yeah. um, I think sometimes it's it's something that we do create in our minds that often produces fear and it stops us from being open and honest. I know I had to make a decision for myself. I had to resolve the conflict between, you know, what I was seeing in clinical practice, what I understood about the scientific literature and what is being told to us, what is being promoted out there in, you know, Western societies about mental health and psychiatric care. And I was done with it. You know, I... There was too many patients that were suffering in front of me getting worse when they started taking various psychiatric drugs. I'm sitting here today evaluating another case into the hospital, out of the hospital on six psychiatric drugs. So the part of this is just is, is an anger that I have. And social media has been an outlet. My Radically Genuine podcast has been an outlet. And I think people appreciate the honesty. And when you when you're able to say things that you think without fear of retribution, I think it does resonate with people because it's what they think as well. So I have, it's overwhelmingly a positive response. I get private messages, emails, clients all around the world who are contacting me, just thanking me for being outspoken and speaking truth to their experience. I don't want to say that I'm anti-psychiatry because I've met outstanding psychiatrists like yourself who have also speaking out about uh, what we're seeing in general clinical practice and trying to promote safe and effective treatment. I've met innovators out there and I've met uh, psychiatrists who are practicing from multiple perspectives that I think are, are promoting health. What I hate the word anti-psychiatrist because it feels anti-science to me. Like that's what they use to discredit people who have dissenting voices. You're anti-something. If anything, I'm pro-science. If anything, I'm pro-ethics. If anything, I am pro-safety. And so that's what I'm trying to communicate. I think I have a grasp of the, of the literature. I think I have a pretty good grasp of, the, of historical context, know a lot about how these drugs came to market, the shift in American culture, the, the role of pharmaceutical um, industry on how physicians are now practicing. I have a pretty good grasp of some of the methodological flaws, the fraud, how these drugs came to market. And I know the adverse effects. So my willingness to communicate it clearly and directly to people who aren't in the field is just where my mission is now. And I honestly do believe it's getting people to ask important questions. Um, it leads people to do investigation on their own and to challenge the medical authority. And I think that's how we make change. What do you think's going on, you know, when people... I guess they look at your tweets and they read them and they say, start saying things like, you know, Roger's dangerous, you know, he's trying to, um, 
you know, he's trying to stigmatize my condition. He's, you know, trying to dim- diminish the, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the medical causes of mental illness and things like that. What do you, what do you think about that when, you know, these, when these things come up and these criticisms come up? Well, I think Twitter or what is called X now is not the best forum to sometimes articulate nuanced issues. I see that you're trying to do it with some of the new long form opportunities that they have, but it's not the opportunity. It's not the avenue for nuanced discussion. And that's why I do bring people to, I bring people to my podcast to have those discussions and hopefully we can have it some of that nuanced discussion today. What I'm doing is the opposite of stigma. What Mm -hmm. I'm doing is I'm bringing attention to the complexity of the experience of being human and the range of factors that could lead somebody to feeling unwell, to even struggle with severe mental illness and to open up the conversation and the opportunities for various avenues towards health. If that's stigmatizing, then then I'm stigmatizing because that's what I want to do. Um, Yeah. Listen, there's a lot of people who know nothing else. They've been brainwashed like the rest of us have been brainwashed through television, through media, through education. And so that becomes the truth. They begin to speak the truth in that manner, and we only understand that as our reality. So part of my job is to be able to help people understand that there's a different perspective. We're medicalizing every aspect of being human. And it is new. It's a modern invention in the manner in which we're conceptualizing this pain. And the struggles that people have, I mean, let's look at statistics. I, I just can't get, I can't wrap my head around every available statistic data point is going to suggest our physical and mental well-being are worsening, increasing in dramatic rates of death by despair, substance abuse, suicide. We have people utilizing the mental health system at rates that have never been utilized before. People are subjectively talking about their mental health in manners which suggest that we're, we're just not doing well um, in comparison to any point in, in history. And there are some measures out there through surveys and other uh, data points of just subjective well-being and health. And so no one can argue that. I want to hear your thoughts on that because I like that. What, what do you think is responsible for the declining mental health? I do think there is a genetic mismatch between modern society and how we're actually supposed to live. So if we're going to talk about the the nuances of this, let's talk about many different factors. We're as isolated uh, as we've ever been. People are meant to be connected to each other, connected to nature. We've evolved within small group communities and tribes. When you begin to isolate people, and uh, there's lack of that social connection and intimacy and closeness, we're inevitably going to struggle. We are eating poorly. We're living through screens. There's rising rates of metabolic illness. It's generally unhappy uh, culture and society. And then the way we frame it makes it worse. So then when we think about it as something that's biological, something that's broken within us that can be fixed with a pharmaceutical often is going to lead to uh, subjective feelings of just hopelessness because let's face it we know the efficacy of these drugs they're not going to solve those problems if anything it's just a, a, a momentary numbness or detachment or maybe the power of belief that there is something that are, there is a quick fix there is something biologically we that is, is wrong within us that we can be able to take to feel better and that ultimately fails 
So when you, when you combine how, how we're living in modern society, isolated, the role of technology, we're being divided as just as a country. When you think politically, you can't get on social media, can't watch the news without seeing horror. You know, we're, we're sitting here today on a podcast where, you know, everything that's happening in the Middle East, in Israel, you know, it's, it's, it's the images that are being paraded in front of us. I mean, it just leads to a pervasive sense of distrust and concern. So like there's, there should be a natural connection and empathy and understanding for what we're all going through. And the path towards is towards healing is, is not finding, you know, the right pill. The path towards healing is being able to understand that life is hard Mm -hmm. and there's opportunities for connection and growth. And we have to, we have to look at our pain and from a different, uh, from a new perspective. And then maybe that's the loss of spirituality or social connection, religion, whatever that may be there. It's just multifactorial. Yeah. You know, you met, you touched on something um, about how we, how we say these are medical problems to be treated with uh, medicines. And, you know, a lot of the times, not only does it not work, but it actually can make things worse because you can make you know, eventually the drugs do turn on people and they can make their symptoms worse or they can lead to um, diagnoses which they don't really have, uh, such as, um, uh, you know, bipolar disorder. And so in my perspective, you know, and I've worked in a bunch of uh, community settings, you know, I usually see, um, you know, therapists, social workers, you know, these professions that we usually think would be more plugged into all of those social causes, which I completely agree with. I think there's a massive loss of connection out there with these atomized families moving all around the country, you know, disconnected from, you know, their communities, um, you know, so the loneliness and, and all of that. I think all of that stuff is really legitimate. But, you know, I, I would expect the groups like the therapists and the social workers and such to stand up against the psychiatrists and say, hey, the way we're treating depression is all wrong. And, you know, I, I think it would be in the interest of their profession as well, you know, to, to be doing this. Um, and so I always wonder, like, what is going on there? You know, why, why have they uh, seeded all of this, um, I guess, public mainstream understanding of the causes of the mental illness over to the biomedical model, which is really from psychiatry? It's a great question. I think we were talking a little bit about this on my podcast is the training is so poor and watered down. So the overwhelming majority of therapists are master's level. So they're social workers and they are master's level counselors and they are limited in the scope in which they can, uh, which they can train them. So they're not trained from a science background. So the information they're getting is the same biased and influenced industry information that the medical professionals get. We live in an allopathic medical environment where we're taught that drugs are healthcare. So even when we take courses in, um, you know, the biological bases of like emotional disorders, it's still heavily influenced by the antiquated ideas around chemical imbalance and the biological bases of like specific neurotransmitters and their influence on behavior and emotion. It's certainly not uh, a, a diverse 
training on empiricism and being able to understand research and ask critical questions and understand the limitations. Much of my education is certainly education that, that I've been able to obtain independently of my formal education. The educational environments are influenced by major organizations. So the American Psychological Associations are what accredit the psychology programs, and then there's similar ones for counselors and social workers. They're, they're influenced. They're influenced by funding and they're influenced by specific ideas. So they're being told and taught the, the DSM diagnostic system. They're being taught that there's strong biological bases to these conditions. They're being told that we have a drug called an antidepressant. And you're being told that if your client is experiencing certain symptomatology, that it is both ethical and necessary to refer that individual to a medical professional, regardless of that medical professional's training or background. Where's the medical professional getting most of their information? Well, when you say 80% of the drugs are being prescribed in primary care centers, they're primarily getting it through the pharmaceutical marketing departments. And I just posted a, a substack today on Lexapro and how it was approved for mm -hmm. children as young as seven years old. There was a six-fold increase in suicidality in comparison to the placebo group. There's four outcome measures that they utilize to determine efficacy. Three out of the four didn't demonstrate any difference, including meaningful reductions in anxiety or improved functioning. But yet, this got approved. And the conclusions didn't meet the data. So the authors who are funded or directly work for that pharmaceutical company come to the conclusion that Lexapro was both safe and tolerable for the treatment of anxiety in seven-year-olds. Any statistician or researcher who wants to kind of do the work around that data will come to the same conclusion. You take Lexapro for childhood anxiety, you're more likely to die by suicide than have any meaningful reduction in anxiety. And that's a fact. Mm -hmm. But who's going to look into that? They're going to read the abstract. They're going to read the pamphlet that's provided by the pharmaceutical salesperson. And those are the conclusions that are drawn. So that's what gets shared. And that's what gets communicated. And that's what becomes truth. So now parents, family members, consumers, they go into their medical environments and the doctors are using these drugs as frontline treatments, regardless of context, you know, regardless if you've had a recent loss, setback in life, you're struggling financially, you're lonely, you're physically unwell, you're sleep deprived. Regardless of context, now this is being labeled and this is what's being provided. Mm -hmm. You know, to, I mean, I, you know, I replied to you on, on, on Twitter and because and, I think you were asking, how does this even happen? And um, um, really, it's precedent because I think Prozac has an indication down to that age and all they have to do is kind of mimic what Prozac does and that's how the FDA works, you know. Because it's almost easier to say, well, we did it for this drug, so we are now bound to do it for that drug because they've shown similar results where the whole thing is really a farce. Because, you know, as I mentioned when I was on your show, I don't even know how we allow them to give these drugs to children because the outcome measure that you really care about, which is suicidal behavior, you know, is more likely on the drug than off the drug consistently, statistically, significantly shown in, in populations of up to 100,000 people. I mean, it is just, it's conclusive that it does this. But 
I want to kind of go back to to my original question because I want to make sure I understood un- understood you correctly, and I want to give you a chance to kind of clarify if there is any further clarification. What I'm hearing is it sounds like the leadership for the psychological American Psychological Association and the other therapies are. Um, I don't want to say asleep at the wheel, but it's kind of like they're just really just not independently thinking about this and are just allowing the American Psychiatric Association to do the thinking for all of them and they're just cool with it. Is is it any is it more complicated than that than that? Yeah. Or is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, we, we would have to assign ignorance to a group of smart people to come to that conclusion. Um they are corrupt political organizations. Mm-hmm. Is a simple is a simple way to kind of proclaim it. So they're highly influenced by by funding and money, and they're not really interested in science. If they were interested in science, they would be an independent entity. And in my field, in order to legitimize psychological treatments, uh, we essentially conduct research in a similar way that the pharmaceutical companies conduct research. So they're randomized control trials where the treatments are standardized and they're short-term. And the goal of those treatments is to reduce symptoms. Symptoms that are identified categorically through the DSM. So there's an alignment there. So I'm a cognitive behavioral psychologist. And so there's a lot of treatments that have been proven through randomized controlled trials to be effective in short-term studies. The challenge with this is that, as you well know, is that you can create a, a treatment that does improve some behavior and reduce some symptoms and create a statistical difference between a control group uh, and, and the treatment itself. But we, we don't necessarily see meaningful improvement in, in functioning. And that's why it's been really hard to disseminate these treatments and have them provided in real world settings because people don't understand that the treatments are designed to, un- to, de- to identify some principles, but those principles can't be administered like a, uh, like a manual, like you follow step by w- steps one, step two, step three, step four. I mean, it's just turned off a lot of therapists to understanding principles. So a great example is, I, you know, I believe in the power of learning. I believe in the power of human resilience and adaptation. So exposure is really, really important. Whether you're talking about post-traumatic stress or you're talking about OCD, the mind, our central nervous system, our fear response system gets activated in response to stimuli that are identified by us as threat. That's evolutionarily adaptive, especially if we've gone through a traumatic experience. However, once you go through trauma, then it just makes sense to overgeneralize that there's danger and there's threat. And so the way people cope is to retreat or avoid or turn to substances to not think about what happened, to not feel the emotional pain. And what we learn from the psychological research is that exposure to that memory, the trauma-related memory, the emotions around it, create this powerful learning experience. One, we can heal from what has happened to us. We can learn that we can tolerate those sensations and those feelings, and we can determine accurately who's safe and who's not safe. But those are really difficult therapies. 
And to be able to do it in a way that's responsible and effective takes a high level of patience, compassion, um, caring for your clients and understanding about who they are and their histories in a way to relate to them in a way that they can start taking small steps forward. When you have a movement around these empirically supported treatments where the therapies are really short term, that there's not a lot of people that we're going to help who have complex trauma histories or have really severe OCD in 15 sessions. It's just not realistic, but it becomes communicated to the general treatment uh, professionals in that way. And there's other aspects of the, the therapist community that I think are really problematic is that there's not really a cohesive and grounded understanding of how people heal and get better. It's all fragmented. You have these psychodynamic therapies. You have these humanistic therapies. You have cognitive behavioral therapies. You have behavioral therapies. You have cognitive therapies. You have a mismatch of everything. And we haven't been able to really be able to identify what are some core aspects of healing and recovery and get people to to function well. And so I think a lot of therapists struggle to do that. They live in a culture of fear. They're They're told that if a client is experiencing suicidal thoughts, you do this checklist, you take these protections. Uh, We're overly medicalized. We're putting too many people into a hospital. Too many therapists are are, are fearful of their own license and of worst outcomes from like even provoking emotion for a client. Like there's just a fear of emotion that's just been generated so much through our expert culture. So I think it's I've actually, I mean, I think it's, it's quite complex, right? But if you talk about major medical organizations and, and the power of academia, it's very, it, it's, it's similar. We're working from a model that is largely biomedical. It's categorical. It's mental health as symptoms and diagnoses. And we're looking for some quick interventions to be able to help people in a way that's just not going to lead to successful outcomes. You know, I'm going to try and not boil this all down into one thing that I think went wrong, but uh, I'm going to say that I think everything went off the track with the DSM. Um, and the reason why I think it went off the track with the DSM is because um, solving any problem really has to do with understanding it, right? And and take major depressive disorder, you know, this, you know, five out of nine symptoms diagnosed symptomatically. Um, and then, you know, that's a disease construct now. But when you look at these people, um, you could have major depressive disorder because you went through a divorce. You could have major depressive disorder because you're in a job you absolutely hate. You could have major depressive disorder because maybe you're a little on the spectrum and you're lonely because you've never learned how to meet someone that you like and have a relationship with them. Um, so there's all these different things, out, you know, there that could make someone depressed which would all have very different treatment options, you know? So psychotherapeutically, if you went through a loss or a divorce, that would be a different problem to solve than the the person who's very lonely and can't get a girlfriend, you know? Um, and so we pretend that all of these people are the same. And um, and so, yeah, you know, maybe the person who, who needs help getting a girlfriend needs a lot of interpersonal training and training in empathy. Maybe the person who hates their job needs to do something that's more um, existential, some kind of existential type psychotherapeutic work, work where they really get in touch with what drives them and their meaning. 
And so I think the absolute, you know, you know, the, the way we've just given up understanding why people are unhappy has just completely confused I think both of our fields. I don't, I don't know what you think about that. That's that's how I see it. Um, yeah, I agree. I do think a lot of the origins are about trying to to fit mental health into the Western medicine uh, treatment uh, industry, right? I mean, let's let's think about what it's kind of evolved into. It certainly is a for profit uh, entity, and the more patients that you can see in a short amount of time, uh, the more profitable. And so there's been this value to being able to quickly diagnose and quickly treat in order to serve that industry. But that's just not, you know, how human beings are. That's not how we get better. As you said, there's a complexity. There is no really a such thing as a major depressive disorder. That's just an umbrella term. That's just a category. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this for, you know, 20 years and I've worked with people in the depths, depths of despair to being mildly impacted by low mood, you never meet the same person twice. It's completely different because their circumstances are so unique. The factors that led to them being depressed tend to be complicated. They have a history. Uh, That history informs how they see the world and how they see the world informs how they cope. So losing a job for one person could put them in a deep depression. For another person, it could be freeing where they create, they see life as an adventure and it creates new opportunities. I think the way we communicate emotional pain and struggle has to change. We have to see it not as a disease state, but rather as something that our body is experiencing, our mind is experiencing ultimately to serve us. Anytime we do not feel well physically, it's a signal. It's a signal to alert us that something has to change, whether that's medically whether that is behaviorally, emotionally, whatever that is, we can't look at what is happening as something that is a disease. We have to see it as an opportunity. Just doing that completely shifts the approach in psychological therapies. Okay, you're feeling really down. You're having these negative thoughts. Your energy is low. There's a reason that this is happening. Let's understand it together. Because that's, as you said, that's the only way we can begin to solve the problem. And, uh, you know, a lot of people... Uh, you know, unfortunately, have been beaten down in life in various ways. So we know exposure to early trauma, negative events, is probably the greatest predictor of struggling with your mental health as you get older. So there's a learning component to this, and and people learn to survive. One of the uh, one of the papers I remember reading in graduate school, and I can't remember who wrote it, but it was called "The Benefits of Being Blue." And it was from a perspective of evolutionary biology that we have evolved to everything that we experience. Every emotion, every thought has some protective survival mechanism to it. So if we grew up in or we have evolved within groups, it's really important that we contribute to that group in order to, to survive. And those who did not contribute to the group were at greater risk of being removed from the group and not surviving. So that's why we feel emotions like anxiety and guilt in social situations. But even, uh, you know, depression in itself could be viewed as some adaptive mechanism to somebody who doesn't have the resources at that particular time to be able to engage and contribute. So we've had to survive tremendous amounts of trauma, 
just to be where we are today. Like imagine you and I are having this conversation today only because hundreds and thousands of years our ancestors had to survive long enough to procreate. That's amazing. That's amazing that that miracle can happen. That means we are, we've survived. Our genes have survived and thrived. So you cannot convince me that when somebody feels really depressed or really anxious, that there's something wrong with them. There's something right with them. There's something that is being triggered, provoked through our genetics that is built in through generation after generation. Doesn't always mean it's adaptive to that moment because we're designed to thrive, survive, procreate, but it could serve some function in that manner. And we have to be able to learn and understand that. That's why I think the acceptance-based movement, especially in anxiety and mood disorders, is so important. Because you learn to develop a new relationship with your internal experience, your thoughts, your emotions. You don't get attached to them as absolute truth. You learn to accept their presence. You learn to observe them. And you use them to your benefit. We have to be able to use emotions and thoughts to our benefit. We have to understand when they're not adaptive, when they're not effective. And when people have, are provided the time, and that's, that's important. In our modern healthcare system, people are not provided the time to understand, to figure out what is happening. And when they do, they do pretty well. You know, we have over 20% of the American population is on some psychiatric drug. When probably that that was a market 40, 50 years ago, that could only be met for like less than 1% of the population. And so what you see is a consistent messaging that fragilizes people, medicalizes people, that has increased the sale of pharmaceuticals. And that system has developed and grown to the point where it's completely out of control at this point. And we've lost a sense of what is actually, you know, being human. So you're... You're practicing at the moment. I'm assuming that you're still seeing patients, okay? But, you know, I've also been on your website and you lead a large team. I mean, you have a lot of therapists uh, associated with your organization. How do you help people within this system, you know, where there's, you're dealing with insurance companies, there's um, uh, rationed care, you know, rationed number of visits that someone can have per year. How do you lead your team? How do you advise them to... To, to best help people? So in our, in our center, um, there is no rationed number of visits uh, with the insurances that, that are, are used. And I think there's probably some healthcare laws around that. Although depending on the health insurance they do have, they could have a large deductible. So in, in our center, um, there's, there's no rationed, I haven't seen that in years. So, you know, that's mm-hmm. a positive. Here's the problems that we, that we face. I created a center that um, does not make a lot of money. Um, what I've done has, has not created financial wealth for me or, or my family. Um, I've chosen to work within the, uh, in, the health, in the health insurance field, which limits and restricts how much money they're going to reimburse. I hire staff and we limit the caseloads that they can have, the number of patients they can see in a week. And... We carve out time each week for training. 
So uh, we have, a, this is also a training clinic for postdoctoral residents and externs uh, and master's level counselors, but our entire staff, 90 minutes is blocked out every Wednesday from 12 to 1.30 for didactics, for various training, for case consult and conceptualization. So our model is we focus on quality of care, not quantity of care. We've provide them the information about the failed drug model so that we can educate patients. My center, we're getting people off drugs. We've made that decision. Uh, we think the evidence is clear. We think that in that regard, we're acting under the best available evidence and in the most ethical way that requires us to have to collaborate and have discussions with local physicians or to find people who are willing to try to responsibly taper off psychiatric drugs. We give people information so they can make informed healthcare decisions. And we move away from the, di the DSM diagnosis and kind of conceptualization. So we're only taking on clients when we can put them through a full course of treatment. We're also measuring outcomes, which means once they come in here, they're taking a various amount of uh, assessment measures and they're establishing goals for themselves. And then we continue to measure that over the course of, the, of therapy. We gather that data. We use that for training of our therapists to, to grow. There's a couple uh, treatments that we provide here that we think are very valuable and very helpful. One of them is the comprehensive full model dialectical behavior therapy, which is a different model. That's, that's 90 minutes of weekly skills training. That's a specific form of individual therapy. And those clients get telephone coaching consultations. And then as a team, we also meet as, uh, uh, as a consultation group. So there's a ton of support. We're providing therapies that work. We're doing them in a safe and evidence-based way. We're measuring progress. And we're, we're looking at behaviors that our clients engage in that we think are health-destroying, including the use of psychiatric drugs. And we try to change that. We try to improve sun exposure, exercise, diet, and we get off, get them off pharmaceuticals. And it's life-changing. It's absolutely life-changing. But it is labor-intensive. The healthcare system has not caught up to what we are, are doing because we're not going to get paid more than the typical therapist down the street who's doing the same nonsense and works with their clients who, have, who are on four drugs and continues to suffer because there's no reward in the system for, for effectiveness, for health outcomes. And I think that we work in a system where the sicker we all are, the more money this industry makes. You know, one thing I, I mean, you the, the center sounds just amazing. And I want to ask a few things and, you know, I, I'm not familiar with the training that, that your, that your um, therapists have when they come out, but, um, I guess something I wonder, you know, because as a psychiatrist, I've had little snippets of training. I've done some CBT, I've done some DBT, I've done some psychodynamic. And um, when I think about those those trainings, I, I don't think we ever had some a very broad training on the things that make people unhappy, on the things that make people depressed. It's It's very... You know, this is what our theory is rather than these are the main reasons why people are unhappy, you know, whether it's isolation or loneliness or relational problems. And and so 
how do you how do you work I, well i don't know this do, do you feel like the people that that when they first come to you that they have this comprehensive knowledge on on how to help all comers right because you mentioned people come in depressed anxious from a whole variety of things and yeah a lot of them are very different and unique but a lot of the patterns are the same you know with the same things tend to make people un, unhappy and there's different spins of them what do you see from the therapists that are coming to you like fresh out of school how, how equipped are they to to help this kind of all comer population of people who are unhappy completely unqualified okay. and that's uh you know listen if i'm going to be completely honest it's it's challenging near impossible to find somebody who's capable of doing the work that we want them to do so anyone who is hired at our center automatically has to go through one year of training so that's even if they're licensed so they come in and they they do a training with us for one entire year we have a full curriculum that we've built and we provide them consistent support and supervision and so we're at the point where we're looking for really good people if you are uh, an, an, an honest and passionate and kind person who just cares about people and wants to help them and you have some strong interpersonal skills but well, we think we can provide you with the the training and the information to be able to support people but one of the things that's really difficult is to find therapists who are willing to have the hard conversations with people like yourself with a with a doctor a psychiatrist or a medical professional has a you know, has a degree of superiority in, in our, in our culture. Doctors are uh, really renowned. And so their word and their training has a lot of clout in American society. So therapists or psychologists are not always comfortable in having those conversations because they feel like they, um, they're out of their lane and they don't have the, the confidence or the skills to be able to maybe challenge them when they need to challenge them. And so that's really hard to, to find in this culture. And so, you know, we're actually trying to work with our staff to be able to have those critical conversations, you know, just by be, sticking to facts and sticking to evidence. And that's the thing that is, is really a, a problem for me in the mental health industry is despite all available evidence in front of you, doctors will continue to double down on harmful interventions. You know, this is the brainwashing that has occurred. You'll, you know, you'll have clients who come in, you sit down with them. They've been on various SSRIs for a decade. And they're coming to see you because they're severely depressed. And by all available measures, they are severely depressed, including questioning whether they want to live. And then you ask them if, if, if they believe the antidepressant is working. And they say Yes. And that is brainwashing. That makes no sense to me. You're severely depressed and you want to die, but you're going to tell me that you believe the antidepressant is working. And so once we get into that conversation and we try to examine the evidence, um, you know, they generally come to the conclusion that, well, I guess I'm just scared. I'll feel worse if I don't have it because that's what's been told to me. And that has, that's how the bar has been lowered. That, so far that someone can be so depressed that they think they have to stay on a drug just because it has that word antidepressant or because a doctor told them. And that's the authority figure and 
the blind obedience to the authority figure that exists in our society. And part of my job is to challenge that authority. Authority has to be earned. So I'm going to have any conversation I'm going to have with a, with a physician, uh, we're going to have to examine evidence. You're going to have to prove a case to me that that client is better being on the regimen of drugs. And if you can't really prove that to me, then I'm going to say this, doc, give me the opportunity. Let's get this person to baseline. Let me work with them. And I will take full responsibility for their care. And in my entire career, I can only recall one doctor who wouldn't allow me to do that. Um, And universally, when that happens, my clients get better. My clients get better when they're off the drugs. Now you can start working with them. So, you know, we just use these terms. Let's let them go to baseline. Let's, let's evaluate them and try to provide them a frontline behavioral or therapeutic intervention. Let's see how they respond. You know, most doctors I think are going to think that's reasonable. Um, and, and that's how we get people to, to get better. Do you struggle with some patients who don't want to let go of, of that narrative? So, um, you know, this is interesting. I don't know how many people are going to believe me when I, when I say this, but um, that narrative now is, is extremely rare. Uh, I mean, I almost never see it anymore. Almost everyone who comes in to sit down with me, and maybe it's because they know who they're sitting down with and they know the center they're going to. So I'm getting, you know, a, a filtered outpatient population. But overwhelmingly, I, I don't find people, I don't think I ever have, who have been on psychiatric drugs and felt really well and were thriving. You know, the doctors will say, well, that, they're not coming to see you because they're doing well. Well, that's a lie because no one on multiple psychiatric drugs recommendation is not to be under someone's care. Usually the recommendation is, you know, combining some form of therapy, being, uh, seeing somebody on a weekly basis and being on the drugs. So it's just not something we see. Um, the only time I hear a patient say that they think a psychiatric drug saved their life is some Twitter comment. And those are rare too, for me. And, um, you know, I, I have no doubt that some people during a very hard time went on an antidepressant and then got better and they believe that drug saved their life. But I'm telling you, that's their belief. That drug didn't save their life. We see this in the literature. We see this in, with the placebo groups that people get better um, from taking the placebo. And that's the power of, of beliefs. And you know, if, if you believe God saved your life, if you believe, you know, your love, if your wife saved your life or you, you believe an antidepressant saved your life, it's truth. But that's not how we can make clinical recommendations. We, we can't make them on, you know, marketing propaganda or, you know, Hollywood culture. We have to make it on sound science and we have to give people sound information and beliefs are something that's very powerful and we have to learn how to work with it. I think a lot of times people just want their pain validated and know that they're suffering and that there are professionals who are working with them who understand that and um, can help them move in a direction where they can start improving their lives. What do you put in this curriculum when, um, when you're onboarding a new staff member? What, what, you know, what are the key areas of remediation in, in, in the training? 
I guess aside from the biomedical model stuff, you know, like obviously I imagine there's going to be stuff in there that talks about psychiatric medications and uh, the medical model, but um, what are the other, the large parts of this curriculum? The most important piece is conceptualization. So there's a lot of training on the, the clinical interview, uh, a collaborative case formulation over time and receiving agreement from the client on that. So you're very aware of like what would be called functional medicine, right? Sure. Yeah. There's a large movement right now of functional medicine doctors who are kind of opposing that allopathic idea. And I guess one of the cores around functional medicine would be really understanding that, uh, that there's something that's going on, uh, that is, that is causing your symptoms and being able to target that and understanding holistically how the body works and so forth. I guess it's something similar that we are working with clients to understand all the factors that would lead them to be feeling unwell. What a and, radical idea, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately it is radical yeah. now. Now it takes time. You know, it's not anything that can be done in 15 minutes. You know, it's, it's multiple weeks and it's gathering data. Um, there's a lot of work for the patient between session. So one of the things we're very clearly stating to them is that this isn't just you coming and talking to me for an hour. You know, we're going we're gonna to start building a way to gather important information day to day. So we're learning how people live. We're learning how people think, how they relate, how they cope. And, you're, and we're developing a conceptualization, one that they can agree on. And one of the, the key components of what our practice does is there's a lot of people who come to see us who are entering into what we call problem behaviors. It could be non-suicidal self-injury through cutting. It could be overeating, undereating, binge eating, purging. Uh, they could be abusing drugs. They could be abusing alcohol. There could be a lot of over-control strategies, like they're very rigid. They could be screaming and yelling as a way of kind of controlling people around them and they're destroying relationships. Maybe they're also uh, extremely like avoidant of attachment and so forth. So we identify problem behaviors fairly early and we conceptualize that and help them understand that their behaviors are serving a function for them. And we have to get them to change those behaviors because those behaviors, although in some way it's regulating their emotions and keeping them safe temporarily. So even cutting makes someone feel better temporarily. Obviously drinking a lot of alcohol numbs you out for a period of time. But we build that motivation to understand that that behavior is what is creating the long-term problems. So we know that there's a period of time to get them to change those problem behaviors. They have to learn how to tolerate distress and they have to know how to cope with those strong urges or those desires to harm their, themselves. And we build in a lot of supports to be able to get them to stop those behaviors. So let's just say there's binging and purging uh, is, is the behavior, for example. Someone might come in and they could be binging and purging like three to four times a week. Everything we're doing in that initial part of therapy is to change that behavior. We're not going to work on their childhood trauma. We're not going to deal with their relationship. We're not going to do anything until those problem behaviors have ended. Because those problem behaviors are getting in the way of them living a full life. And it's a demonstration that they don't know how to cope. So if you start talking about childhood trauma, for example, when somebody is cutting themselves, is thinking about suicide and binging on food, they mm -hmm. don't know how to deal with that emotion yet. 
So you start targeting that, all that's going to happen is you're going to see those other behaviors intensify and exacerbate because that's what they're using to deal with the memories, to deal with the pain. So you have to build their skills to be able to tolerate that. They have to get some form of stability in their life until you start targeting that in therapy. They also have to be prepared for it and educated, and they have to know what to expect because, again, it's not just an hour or two hours a week with a therapist. It's between session homework and so forth. For others, they need some supports outside of sessions, so consultation calls would be part of it. So you can see there's a complexity to it, but it does start with conceptualization drives intervention. And unless you have a solid and sound conceptualization of what the problems are, no one's going to be able to help you. And that's what's happening in this fast food style of, of therapy and psychiatric care is there's not a sound conceptualization when you're just treating symptoms and you're just using DSM diagnosis to, to label somebody. You're not really knowing anybody. You're given a watered down version of therapy. And that's one of the things I've certainly found about other medical systems. Like uh, the UK seems to be very active on Twitter. So there's a lot of people from the UK talk about the NHS system. They roll out these treatments like a, like a CBT or a DBT. And it's a real watered down government run version of the treatment. So they have all this different idea of what these therapies are that, does, that in no way reflects what we do here at my center. It's a, it's a dumbed down version of it. And even cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been, you know, fairly proven in some of these RCTs has been watered down to such an extent, I call it like CBT for dummies. You know, it's like these quick, you know, your thoughts or what's impacting your emotions and your behavior. Let's change your thoughts here. Do this worksheet. Here's your homework in 12 sessions. You know, you should overcome your depression and your anxiety. That's not how CBT is provided. That's not how experts provide CBT. It's much more functional. It's much more understanding it from a conceptualization standpoint. We may rely on some interventions, but only after, you know, there's an agreed upon conceptualization. So that training is quite challenging. Um, I'm a behaviorist, so I'll work with parents too of kids who are cutting and suicidal. And I've, it's very hard to find somebody who understands behavioral principles, like simple things like um, just reinforcement you know, what, what is negative reinforcement? What is positive reinforcement? How, how does an environmental contingencies maintain behavior? You know, these things are, are taught in programs, but it's not really understood in a way that it's applicable in clinical practice. So there's so many times I have to sit down with parents and say the way that you are responding is maintaining your kid's reaction. And so I got to get them to alter and change their behavior. But to do that, there's usually what's called an extinction burst. So behavior increases in the short term and not a lot of people have the ability to tolerate the distress in the short term to get people to change behavior. So a lot of these concepts are taught in our curriculum as well as we integrate some neuroscience and learning with exposure. So if we're a center that's going to treat eating disorders and OCD and post-traumatic stress, then we really have to understand the, uh, the neurobiology of learning because we're going to have to tolerate the distress with our clients to do in vivo exposures. And it's really hard to do in vivo exposures. Like I said, these type of treatments are not easy to implement. They're complex and they require a high level of expertise, which is why you don't see it in community-based settings. Well, now that you're bringing that up, I mean, something that I never really understood was, um, 
why so much of psychotherapy happens like in in an office right you know and I, and i think probably social like severe social anxiety disorder is probably the best you know maybe one of the best ways to look at this you have some people who are so anxious they can't even make friends you know let alone you know you know meet a partner or a romantic partner or something like that i mean just the idea that you would be able to solve that sitting across from someone in a room um yeah, sure, you could probably make some strides, but if that person went out, you know, with you to your college or something like that and, you you know, you had to go and, you know, have a conversation, you know, with, with, with this person, they look friendly and then come back, check in with me, let's see what it's like. Because um, there's so much you can learn from uh, in-person sort of experience and I just, and I don't know why no one's talking about it. I mean, it seems to be the way most coaching works, um, you know, when, when there's uh, different coaching things. So I, I just want to get your take on that, why, why, why there's not more actual in, in vivo, in real life, you know, behavioral interventions where people could really learn in real time. Well, I think this has some historical roots. So first of all, psychotherapy in itself is in its infancy stages. It really is. Now you try to integrate that into the modern healthcare system. So you're using health insurance. You have to be seeing them in an office setting. And then you've been taught with some psychodynamic roots where the therapist in itself is uh, almost like a blank slate. And there's this discussion often about transference and boundary violations and so forth. So there's been these belief systems about what therapy is that has led to an institution. So therapy has become its own model. And these people have this idea of what therapy is and should be. Like you can go into an office with somebody and you can develop this relationship with a professional who it's a one-way intimate relationship and somehow you can expose all your dark secrets and all your history. And then there's going to be some healing that takes place with, within that as the therapist is uh, in some godlike state and can, you know, just interpret the behavior and give them insight into something they never knew before. And that insight then creates meaningful and lasting change. I think that's all nonsense. And I think it's actually harmful. That's not to, that's not to diminish the power of a relationship that's developed. And it's not to diminish the power of, um, being in a safe environment where someone can talk about things that have happened to them in a way where they're not judged and they're understood and they're validated and they're supported. That part is, is really important. But the way that the therapist is sometimes spoken about and, the, and how it's restricted into that office environment has roots in psychoanalytic and dynamic writings. It's unprofessional. You know, if you were to leave that office and have them kind of... Uh, you know, you know, I guess they'd say it's some kind of boundary violation or, or boundary crossing or it's too intimate or it's too, you know, it's blurring the lines too much. Um, I mean, that that's kind of my gut feeling of how that would be looked like in a lot of settings. It would. You'd almost like question the, the therapist as as if they're they're trying to develop some relationship with their their client for their own personal reasons. Um, and that's just based on the limitations of their own training. So the name of my podcast is Radically Genuine, but Radically Genuine isn't some word that I developed. Um, it's actually the highest level of validation, and it's taught as a therapeutic way of being in DBT. So in dialectical behavior therapy, there's a lot of talk about um, the importance of validation in emotion regulation. 
So a lot of our clients um, have been chronically invalidated for a lot of different ways because they experience their emotions quite intensely. Maybe they were victims of abuse. Their reactions aren't always understood by their environment. So their environment often tells them they're crazy or that makes no sense. Why do you feel that way? So it leads to this chronic uh, distrust of their own emotions, which leads to emotion dysregulation. So as a DBT therapist, there's two things that are really important. You can't come uh, to my center with, with therapy speak where you're just repeating back to the client what they're saying or you're, you're providing some fake sympathy like yeah. that doesn't work. Um, it doesn't work for our clientele and it's not effective. So radically genuine is about treating your client as an equal. They're a human being, which requires you to be a human being. You can't be a fake person over there and not show yourself and who you are. And so um, obviously there's still boundaries. It's a professional relationship. There's always respect for the person. Uh, mm-hmm. If a person is interested in you um, personally, we're not going to view that as something that's pathological. You know, like a psychodynamic person might question their need to know the therapist. Well, what the fuck? I'm talking to you. Um, I'm sharing with you personal details. I don't know who you are. I want to know more about who you are. We would see that as a normal response. You know, I might mm-hmm. open up the conversation. What do you need to know? What would you like to know about me? And that type of self-disclosure would not necessarily in any way be viewed as a boundary violation. It actually would see, be necessary to show that person you're human. Mm-hmm. And so that radically genuine a, a approach is, a, is, is much different than the psychodynamic therapist. And it's actually necessary for somebody who has a difficult time trusting authority. That's why yeah. someone who has a borderline personality dis- diagnosis, which I absolutely hate that word, because it's often young women who have some trauma history. Like overwhelmingly, that's what I tend to see. And so their reactions to me are functional and adaptive based on what they've experienced. And they have to learn new ways to be more effective and to regulate their emotions and develop relationships. But that can only be learned when your, your therapist is a human being and acts like one and is willing to develop that relationship with them. And so the approach is different. So, um, in CBT behavioral therapies, we're fine with taking our clients out of office. If you're someone is suffering from OCD or panic, mm-hmm. you know, we have to get them out of the office. I get my panic clients to run stairs in my office. We're trying to induce uh, hyperventilation. We're trying to you know induce a panic attack so they know how to respond to it. We're trying to induce interoceptive exposure. So. All those things are really important. There's a lot of things that we can do with our clients that don't require us to be with them. Um, We can set that up with a family member or a friend and they can do an experiment and they can report back to us. There's use of apps and other tools that help us intervene with now with uh, telehealth and screens. There's, you know, they can do exposures at home and we can be in the office. So the point being is it does have to extend way beyond traditional therapy in order to be able to help people. And coaching models are incredibly, incredibly effective. Sometimes it's just 15 minutes with me on the phone with a client, coaching them on how to respond in a difficult moment is more effective than 10 therapy sessions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that there's so many ways that you can help people. I mean, 
you know, some things that come to, that that came to my mind, you know, when I was doing because I did I did therapy during my psychiatry training for a couple of years. I was always wondering, you know, like, you know, what is happening in their relationships? Because a lot of people would talk about fights with their spouse and things like that. And part of me was just like, I, you know, I wonder why we don't like record some of these things. You know, next time you get in a fight, you know, hit record. Just say that it's, you know, for your therapy. Make sure your spouse is okay with it. Bring it in. Let, let's let's have a listen, you know, because, you know, I always struggled. I'm like, I'm trying to like understand something from like a one-sided perspective in in here and um and i don't know i the whole the whole area of therapy i always thought could um like like uh, you know i was like working at it with one tool and i felt like there should have been other other things at my disposal but i was doing psychodynamics so you know just the whiff of any of these things they would have said no 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 not professional you know this is (laughs) this is too far yeah yeah i mean this is an important teaching point in our training program is we, one of the things that we have to tell young therapists is, you know, just because your client tells you something doesn't mean it's truth. It might be their truth. It might be their idea of truth. And that's important, but it does, you can't take it as absolute fact. And that's why um, in a lot of our work, it's really important to get multiple informants, um, bring in the spouse. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're working with adolescents, call the school, bring in both parents. Right? You want to get as much information about that person's behavior and actions as possible because it's only human to protect yourself, uh, impression management in those sessions, and get the person in front of you to think as positively about you as possible. And that's, our, our job is not, is not that. Our job is to help them. And so you almost have to, from the beginning, communicate that. I need to know you at your worst. Right? You're a human being. I make mistakes too. I'm here to help you though. So I need mm-hmm. to know if I'm a fly in the wall, you know, what that looks like when that's happening. Yeah. And that's the only way we can help people. So I'm going to segue now because there's still other things that I want to talk to you about. Um, the things that make people upset from your vantage point, from the people that come to you in your clinic, if you were to look at, you know, a whole bunch of them, a uh, hundred of them or something, are there patterns in what's causing people's distress out there. I know you mentioned things like loneliness. I don't know if, if job problems are out there. I don't know if it's women juggling work with children and you know unequal household responsibility. Give me the lay of the land. What do you see today as the main things that are making people unhappy? I think even Freud said that most problems have to do with love and work. Um, and I think generally that's what you're, you're, you're seeing. Almost every presenting problem has some interpersonal component in an origin of that, like a foundation for that. So, uh, you know, there, there are people who feel, uh, you know, extremely lonely and have lost confidence and feel anxious out in the world amongst people. Um, people have been victimized by others. And so, you know, the trauma of that has lasting effects. There's uh, the day-to-day challenges that exist of trying to make ends meet and how to do that, which, you know, requires often sometimes working long hours, maybe even in jobs that that people don't like and, uh, you know, struggling to pay the bills and then coming home and then having to deal with the day-to-day stress that life isn't, uh, you know, hasn't become something that is joyful. 
and health promoting and engaging. Instead, it's like constant fear. I do believe we live in a fear-based culture and it can manifest itself in many different ways. There's so many vices that exist to deal with those stressors. And the, the vices themselves then create more problems. But when you look at the, you know, generally the foundation of it is that there is some interpersonal component to it. Um, there's some interpersonal loss that exists in their pain. And it could sometimes lead to being driven inward to themselves. Like, uh, you know, I'm unlovable. You know, I'm not capable enough. I'm not good enough. And just think about, you know, the consequences of like believing that about yourself. Um, the other way to answer that question is to think about the opposite end. What makes life worth living? If you're going to, if you're going to survey, you know, people throughout generations and you ask what makes life worth living, what creates joy, you know, they're going to talk about those memories, those experiences, the love, the connection, family, friends, new experiences. It's those moments that make life worth living as well as contributing being of service to others and following passions and creating. So when that's lacking in a, in a person's life, you know, it's going to lead to some degree of despair and the way that human beings deal with despair is often in very self-destructive ways. Another thing I'm really curious to ask you about, are there other Roger McFillins out there or are you all alone kind of uh, in your profession? I don't think I'm alone um, because I've, had some people on my podcast who I think even paved the way, you know, prior to me, but I just began to realize who they were and the work they were doing when I became outspoken on social media. Give them a shout out. I'd love to uh, check them out. Oh, I'm so horrible with names. Okay. I'm just going to, I'm going to just uh, explain the story where I go back to my, yeah. my podcast here and look at some of the yeah. people. Um, but like, for example, I think what makes me a little bit unique is I use Twitter to um, be able to talk about these things. And that's what led me to, to stand out. But there are, um, let's see, there are, are you talking about just as far as psychologists? Yeah, yeah, psychologists, people kind of within your profession. Social so, workers are good as well, you know. Yeah, I mean, Dr. Chuck Ruby is somebody that stands out. Yeah, I know um, him, yeah. I, you know, he, he's written a, you know, a book on this, on this stuff and he's kind of been involved in, with yeah. it, paid the way, uh, you know, there's, there's out in the UK, Dr. Jessica Taylor is very provocative as a, as a feminist. Um, but she is like, I think she's a, she's a leader in the depathologizing movement. Um, I'm a supporter of what she's doing because I think she is bringing attention to issues that have harmed you know, young women for generations. And she does it in a very provocative um, and, out, and outspoken manner. But behind that is a lot of love and a lot of compassion. And I find her to be highly intelligent. So she's even at least has the guts to put something out there like a indicative trauma manual to think about things from different perspectives. And she takes a lot of, she takes a lot of shit for doing it. So I have a lot of respect for, you know, for the work that she's that she's doing. Gretchen LeFevre Watson is somebody who I've had on my podcast who, you know, took on the pharmaceutical industry early with, with her research on, um, on ADHD in her community. And she had to go up against, um, you know, someone like Russell Barkley, who was, you know, funded by the pharmaceutical industry and was trying to discredit her and 
her work. I mean, those are just, you know, some examples of psychologists. Thanks. And I want to make sure I hear your story because I always wonder, like, when did, when did you notice something was awry? You know, you, you know, you go through your life, you enter your profession, you, you, you're wanting to help people. How did you start to notice that things weren't quite right? What, t- tell me that story. Well, I was 22 years old. My first job out of undergrad was at a children's psychiatric hospital. It's before I even decided to be a psychologist. Um, I thought I was going to potentially be a teacher, a coach, a football coach. I was doing that kind of work. And I, while I was figuring it out, I took this job and it ends up being, you know, put me on my path, my calling. And these were kids that were ages five to 10 years old. And kids that are going to be in a psychiatric hospital as young as five years old, you can understand the environments that they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Many of them were in acute stress from being physically and sexually abused, uh, environments that were economically deprived. They were nutrient deficient, ill, um, single family homes, you know, high stress environments. And they were you know, using the word acting out. So they were becoming aggressive. They were reactive. It's not, it's not normal developmentally for a young child to say that they want to die, but you know, a lot of those kids said they would want to die. And you would see their, you would see um, just how scared they were of older men um, or just adults. There was a lack of trust and a way that they would deal with that, that fear would be to become quite aggressive right away. And on that psychiatric unit, the way that you managed kids who were aggressive was to put them actually in holds and take them off the unit to a, what we called a, a timeout room. But it, you know, it was just another holding facility. And if these kids continued to be aggressive, they would be strapped down to a board. And I couldn't handle that. Uh, I couldn't do it. And so I refused. So I, I did my own thing, which was, um, I developed relationships. I'd let a seven-year-old hit me without holding them. And I would just tell them, you know, you're safe. I'm not going to hurt you. If you sit down with me, we'll talk about how, what we can do differently. And that approach was 100% effective. And I saw the treatment. I saw how the psychiatrist viewed, conceptualized, and treated these kids. They would do psychiatric evaluations, which I would be present for, that lasted less than five minutes. This is no joke. This is how they- I've seen them. That's completely accurate. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll, do, I'll, I'll actually conduct the psychiatric interview right now for your audience. Mm-hmm. What's your name? How old are you? Where do you live? Where do you go to school? Why are you in the hospital? That's it. Then there would be a psychiatric evaluation written up with a diagnosis. Sometimes those diagnoses would be severe mental illness, bipolar disorder for a seven-year-old, schizophrenia for a seven-year-old, which would justify multiple antipsychotics and other drugs. And the time that I was there, 
1999 through like 2001, it was almost the height of experimentation on developing brains. There was always the new drug, um, the new research, and these doctors acted like mad chemists going back and forth with drug and drug. And I would see these kids deteriorate. Um, when, their, when their aggression would decrease, it's because they were sedated. Some of them, I'd see, were sleeping 16 hours a day. I'd see other kids develop tardive dyskinesia and just other like tics and reactions that were horrible to witness, akathisia. And when you see a child in, in pain, suffering that way, and the only way they would get discharged when they kind of walked out of there like zombies, you question, you question that care. And even though I knew nothing at that time, I knew nothing about the mental health system. I knew nothing about the science, the research. I knew in my heart it was wrong. What was your undergrad? Because you said you were there when you were 22. My undergrad was in education. I was going to be a teacher. Wow. Okay. So I completely shifted course. What I decided to do while I was there is I decided to enter into a master's program in counseling. Figured I got to figure some things out. And I started just reading on my own. And I've always been somebody who's challenged authority, comfortable in doing that. So um, I actually, weirdly enough, got promoted right away to something called a lead counselor, which allowed me to attend treatment team meetings. And I observed the hierarchy that existed. So in the treatment team meetings, there was the psychiatrist who was God. No one would question him. Underneath him would be the nurse who was just really kind of handing out the, the meds. And social workers who were really working just with aftercare and then counselors. And no one would challenge this doctor. He, he had a uh, godlike status. And I entered into those meetings and I was respected because whenever I was on whatever, there's a lot of statistics that are generated in a psych hospital around holds, right? It's not good to have to put, uh, kids into restraints. And so when I was on the unit, there was a significant decrease in aggressive outbursts and behavior. And that's because of my approach that I, that I took. And so I did get promoted pretty quickly, but I immediately started challenging the, the conceptualization and treatment. Hmm. And, um, it was, it was interesting because I would, I was kind of expecting some kind of, um, some kind of discussion back that had some complexity to it and maybe some science and, um, you know, maybe some education for me that I could learn. And I could never really get that. You know, it's like one of the things when you know bullshit, you know bullshit, right? They just say, well, they've got this disorder and they need this drug. And then I'd say, well, I was with this person when they became, when they were admitted to the unit, they certainly looked like they just came out of a war zone. And when I went to just uh, take their jacket from them, they flinched and jumped back like I was going to hit them. How would somebody who was, who was traumatized at home act? And how do you determine whether that's bipolar disorder? And then they would just like dismiss that and say, well, we see significant mood variability here in this situation. And, you know, this is what mania looks like, you know, and that's all you were going to get. 
And, um, you know, they talked about drugs as if they were medicine and the medicine is what's going to allow them to feel better and to feel better than they would be able to manage their behavior. And all you did was see a revolving door of the same kids coming back into the system. And I went from that job into the juvenile justice system where I became a juvenile probation officer who worked on a specialized unit with kids who had major mental health diagnoses. So then I saw it repeated again. The psychiatrists in the juvenile uh, detention center giving the bipolar diagnosis for a kid who wouldn't even talk to them. So they got no information. But that kid was, was provided that diagnosis, so he was on my caseload. So it allowed me to learn how to communicate in court, go to court, um, go into very difficult circumstances, homes of poverty and so forth. And so, uh, you know, my career spanned being in schools, in-home therapy, juvenile justice system, and in psychiatric hospital before I ever became a licensed psychologist. I learned more in my real-world experience than I did in any one day in my program. And I'll say this to my wife, like all the money we spent on formal education, you know, in a lot of ways I've had to unlearn it and, um, you know, fall back on, you know, common sense and, and independent and critical thinking. Feel the exact same way. Yeah. I feel like people go into these professions with good intuition, good gut feelings, good understandings about things that work and don't work. And then it just confuses them. It needs to be unlearned later on. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people, you know, lose that intuition and that trust. Um, they, they're, they're therapists, they're mental health professionals. They believe certain things to to be true, and then you know they're told something completely different, and then they question themselves. Um, and you know that's the unfortunate thing I think about where where we're at in the mental health system is there's not many therapists I can refer to anymore because I just know their training and I know their background and it's unlikely they're going to act outside that model. You know, I, I'd like to get your take on this because, you know, I, I saw it from a different perspective. You know, when we were talking, I know, I know I shared my story about being in the pharmaceutical industry and the FDA and also being a psychiatrist. And, you know, in many of these places, I, I was confronted with the same thing, you know, people kind of rubber stamping, you know, plans that didn't make sense, uh, whether in drug companies or FDA or in clinical clinical care. And I would often just go, you know, why is this happening? And I would think about it very carefully. And a lot of the times I think it's it's almost just like peer pressure. It's like you want to be a team player. You, you know, you don't and, – and you also don't really trust yourself as well. Like you said, you're just like, who am I? to challenge what this, this other person is saying. And they also learn eventually that it's just a lot easier to kind of go with the flow. You know, this is sanctioned by, you know, all these other people with, um, who are professors and, um, you know, I've been doing this for year years. There must be nothing wrong with this. And then it ends up just being this thing where it's like easier for me to go along and there's going to be less conflict and I want to be a team player and get that promotion. I mean, that was what my gut was telling me when I was seeing this kind of again and again, trying to understand how so many people could become complicit in something that was just so obviously broken. It's one of the reasons why I had to start my own practice. I had to be independent um, because there's no way I was going to survive 
working for someone else and having to just be a team player and violate my values. It was just impossible. So I needed to create something that allowed me to bet on myself and be completely independent of an authority figure because that's where you lose your soul. You know, you lose your soul when you have to, you have to act against your greater values just to put food on the table for your family. And I just didn't want to be in that position, but I empathize with people who are. Rodra, I've taken us right up to the end of uh, our time together and I've enjoyed every second with you. Uh, I hope this is one of many conversations we're going to have uh, going forward. And I really want to just thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy day to come and speak with me and my audience. I really appreciate it. I respect the work that you're doing. Um, Dr. Joseph, I mean, one of the, the, the things that you're, you're doing is you're going to, you're going to legitimize this movement because there's too many people that can just discredit me by saying I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm anti-psychiatry. So when you have a psychiatrist who's able to have these same discussions and challenge these same ideas and talk about the science in the manner in which you're, you're talking about it, it it's, propels the movement forward. And the movement is around uh, patient safety, uh, you know, first and foremost, and it's around informed consent. And we have to have a, you know, an ethical duty that exists to all our clients that they're given information in a way that's accurate and provides them the best opportunity for recovery and for health. And you're starting to do that. And um, I think you're changing lives by your willingness to, to do it. And this channel, I think, for example, you know, your willingness to have these conversations with some of the patients who've been harmed, you know, this is exactly what we need at this time to be able to create change. Well, not to kind of make everyone vomit with the love fest here, but I, I've been told to kind of talk about uh, praise publicly, and that is, uh, you know, and I mentioned this to you, uh, your your work on Twitter, you know, your outspokenness really did inspire me as well to kind of take a more public stance on this. So forever grateful for you and uh, your bravery there. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.